I have always tried to do what I could, especially in the world of art. Art? Well, I don't know how we drifted around to that, but what is your opinion of art? I am very glad you asked me. I withdraw the I... question. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 11, Art is Art and Water is Water. For this discussion of the Marx Brothers and surrealism, some absurd introductions for your ridiculous hosts. Matthew Conium is a dolphin wearing a derby. He hails from the lawnmower region of Dentist. In 1685, he built a house out of soup, which is now known as the Marx Brothers. Matthew. And the joke's on Noah, because that is actually all entirely true. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to our second year as international broadcasters. They said it wouldn't last. Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Gassell is a Yiddish expression meaning bless yourself, or literally, where's my hat? This year alone, there have been over 7,000 reported instances of Bob Gassell, including the popular hot and spicy variety. Good morning, Bob. Yeah, you're giving me flashbacks to uh, days in uh, the dormitory in college here. Uh, It feels like yesterday. (laughs) Noah Diamond couldn't be here today, so this is also Bob Gassell. I'll be doing Noah's voice as well as my own for the duration of this episode. (laughs) And since he's our special guest, how about a legitimate introduction for Mr. Josh Frank? He is the co-author and principal creative force behind Giraffes on Horseback Salad, the graphic novel adaptation of Salvador Dali's proposed Marx Brothers film, available in March from Quirk Books. Hey, I use Quirk Books to handle my household finances. And pre-orderable right now on the Amazon machine, Mr. Frank is also the author of books about the band The Pixies and the composer Peter Ivers, and he owns and operates the Blue Starlight Mini Urban Drive-In Movie Theater in Austin, Texas. Which is the only place that uh, this film is actually showing at the moment. (laughs) Uh, Welcome aboard, Josh. Uh, thank you very much, but Josh Frank couldn't be here today. I'm Denzel Washington, and I weigh a buck ninety-five. <laughs> You'll fit right in. Great. Well, before we get into the deep waters of surrealism, let's talk about this book, Giraffes on Horseback Salad, uh, Josh Frank's new adaptation of the Salvador Dali Marx Brothers movie that never was until now. What's this? Salvador who? So in 19, uh, in the 1930s, uh, Salvador Dali was uh, a big fan of the Marx Brothers. Um, he considered them sort of the, the penultimate uh, uh, embodiment of surrealism, you know, and uh, in, in, in human form, particularly Harpo. And he, uh, he decided that he had to meet Harpo. And at a party in Paris, uh, while Harpo was... Um, on a uh, press tour of Night at the Opera. And they develop a, um, a back and forth uh, through uh, uh, the right letters. And uh, Dolly sends Harpo a, um, a surrealist harp that's covered in, um, in uh, cellophane and uh, the strings are barbed wire. Harpo writes him back saying, love the gift. Um, I'd be happy to be smeared by you painted by you. And uh, Dolly took that as an invitation and went overseas and painted Harpo. And they spent some time together in Hollywood. Um, And uh, 
at, at Harpo's home with uh, Susan and, and Gala. Um, and it was there that Har- that uh, Dolly uh, told Harpo that he wanted to write a, a, a surrealist movie starring Harpo and his brothers. And uh, he spent a period of time uh, writing a treatment that was uh, sort of... A, based on an earlier idea about this surrealist woman and it became named uh giraffes on horseback salad and um uh he they even got as far as uh, taking it in to show to uh the producers at uh, mgm and um that's when Irving thalberg dropped dead yeah and then it, it, <laughs> it, it ended it, it ended there and dolly went back home and uh for you know, many years after that, you know, it was sort of like his white whale, and um, so yeah. Um, uh, but there, uh, there wasn't a lot online about about uh, the story, you know. But I, I had this sort of hunch that if I sort of dug a little deeper, that maybe I could find more material that would sort of shed light on what he had intended. And I, you know, I spent a couple of years basically searching through archives and museums and in Europe and uh, eventually came across um, uh, some, some stuff that hadn't, you know, been published before. One of which was like 80 pages of handwritten notes um, that I had translated and uh, went to work on adapting into uh, a screenplay with the idea that I would then take that uh, screenplay and, um, and turn it into a graphic novel. And uh, that is how Drafts on Horseback Salad came to, to be in, in, the, in the, the modern day. Let's, let's get your Marx Brothers origin story. How did you fall in love with the brothers and what do they mean to you? Um, well, one of the cool things from, you know, getting into this book and uh, joining the council and kind of hearing what a lot of people uh have said about their Marx Brothers origin stories. It's really very comforting and cool to see that uh, there's a lot of origin story connections, you know, like, like I thought I was the only one in the world who, you know, at age nine or 10, you know, went to the JCC uh, Jewish book fair and discovered, you know, that they had Marx Brothers books and, uh, I thought I was the only one that, you know, discovered, you know, at midnight, the local TV stations would play Marx Brothers movies. And, you know, these are the ways that I, you know, was brought into that world at a young age, you know. And w- with that said, I was the only one in my community, <laughs> uh, you know, like. Um, well, I had I had two other really good friends, Greg and uh, and Michael Waghalter, and the three of us like became obsessed with the Marx Brothers. You know, when we were nine or ten years old. But at that time, pre-internet, you're just kids. You really think that you're the only oddball kids in the world that are doing this because none of your peers, you know, they're all like you know obsessed with buying the uh, uh, the, the Camel Cigarette Guy T-shirts, you know. And, uh, and, uh, sorry to interrupt you there. Did you, did you say Michael Wagfalter? Waghalter. Michael Waghalter. That guy had no choice. I I bet he had a middle initial. Right. 
Right, right. It's it true. Sounds like he's a disgrace no. to the family name of Wagwalter. <laughs> right. Everything is possible. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, he was the closest, and he really he resembled Groucho, and in in and 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 he he he. Yeah, and so the three of us really were the little Marx brothers, you know. And um, but yeah, the point is, is that my origin was very, you know, it was I was one of the only ones in Houston, Texas, growing up that like you know had these experiences that I knew of. But watching the cast, I mean, listening to the cast and and uh, joining in further into the Marx Brothers community since I started working on the book, it's neat to see how many more. Uh, you know how there, how there's this subset of people that that had sort of a similar awakening, you know, and and um, when I was like twelve or thirteen, uh, Bill Marks Harpo's uh, son uh, came through town on a on a tour of um, the U.S. Uh, he was touring uh, with his piano and with this woman who played harp, and my parents took me to see him. And, you know, it was like meeting a beetle for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was sort of the beginning of it. And, you know, I tried out Chaplin and I tried out uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges. And I enjoyed them uh, more than a nine-year-old should, uh, probably. But the Marx Brothers always were, you know, the the ultimate for me. They they uh, they spoke to me in a way no, no others did. And I think it, it's probably because... You know, as an artist, like I was drawn to surrealism. I was drawn to absurdity. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, that definitely is what um, fueled my my movement as an artist over the years. You know, um, and I I think I mentioned this in the in the introduction to the book, but I wa- I I recorded. I we had one of the first VHS recorders, so I recorded all the Marx Brothers movies. Uh, as a kid on late night TV. And I watched them so many times that to this day, like I have completely vivid memories of every late night Houston, Texas commercial um, from, you know, 1984 (laughs) because yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like, like, you know, um, uh, mattress warehouse will save you money you know it's like (laughs) that played between every that was in every commercial break and it's i dream that commercial because of how many times i watch these vhs tapes you know so yeah that's sort of the that's that's the background and then i and then i you know as i wrote the books you know um i got into this idea of lost histories which led me to start looking really uh, intensely about seven, eight years ago for a great Marx Brothers lost history that maybe I could, you know, have be one of my books, you know, it was sort of a, a dream project. So, yeah. It's so fascinating. I was looking at your book again today. Uh, and it's fascinating the way your um, kind of journey towards this parallels Noah's. Uh, you mm-hmm. were both in your in, in your different field. You in in the kind of the art field, and Noah in the theatre field. Were doing exactly the same thing, looking for for a lost project, finding it, finding it in bits, piecing it together. It really runs in tandem. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I, I found, um, I, I started like keeping an eye on Noah there, uh, like at the very beginning of my project, because I saw he was, you know, working to get the musical done and. And um, I was so curious, you know, and um, I I reached out pretty early on, I think. And because 
for no other reason that I felt like I really needed to know this guy, you know, just, just, you know, I, I, I need, you know, this was a, a like-minded spirit and um, I really started caring about what he was doing uh, with his project and I really wanted it to work. And um, Noah actually was a, a big help from the start, not to obviously mention um, what's become a really important contribution in the whole overall project with um, the lyrics uh, uh, collaboration uh, in the book. But, you know, he directed me to, you know, a, a, a person that could actually sort of help me navigate uh, getting the permissions I needed to, to actually make this a reality. And um, so, yeah. And then, you know, just talking to him was just so great. You know, when you get older, like, you know, you, I feel like a lot of people stop reaching out for, you know, and, and, you know, cause we're grownups now and like, you know, we're, we're not going to try and, you know, make new friends, you know, cause we've got our friends and we've got our community and, and that, that, that part's, I think that part becomes over for a lot of people, but I feel like in the arts, that's not as true. I feel like in the arts, there's really a need for that connection and a need to find new people to inspire you and to work with. And so, uh, I think there's more motivation for outreach. And so, um, it's just really cool that like, you know, 30 years on 35 years on into the love of Marx brothers and into the journey as an artist, you know, two like-minded people like me and Noah can come together and become friends and, and, um, and play, you know? It is true. It turns out that it's a world full of wag halters. That's that's right. It's it's true. (laughs) Well, well, let me ask you this, Josh, how far into your project did you determine like what the, what the format was going to be for your finished thing? Uh, you know, a script, a book, uh, well, well, because my third book was an illustrated novel, and I really loved the, I, I really loved that process of um, I really loved that process of collaborating, uh, you know, with 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 someone that that was uh, that could make images out of my ideas. I just I just it's so mm-hmm. it's such a cool thing, you know, like like it's it. I, I've always my books are ways of me making movies without making movies. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like I feel like book. Like if you, you could create a book a certain way and you kind of get to make a movie without having to count on other people to get your movie made. That's mm-hmm. the problem with movies is that, you know, you usually need other people and um, uh, to basically say yes or whatever. And, and so with the third book, I was really the, the, the which was called The Good Inn that I wrote with Black Francis from the, the band The Pixies. I was really trying to push that idea of can I write a screenplay and you know give people the feeling that they're experiencing a movie that was never made. And so with that, that was sort of like when I finished that, I was like, I love this. This is a great format. I think this is just this is a really cool concept. I want to explore this more. And so I knew going in that I wanted to, to explore that idea more of like, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, 
an illustrated novel or a graphic novel, but I was leaning towards the idea that it would be more graphic novel this time, mm-hmm. um, more storyboard, you know, like a sort of, uh, so that's, that's what it, that's what it turned into. And, you know, the, the first there's, it's sort of like two parts. The first part is biographical and it's more like, um, illu- it's more like illustrated novel format. And then when you get into the movie, and you walk into the, the 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 virtual movie theater, it becomes sort of a full on graphic novel, and and I knew early on that I that that was that was my pitch anyway to the publisher of, of how I would do it, um, and I also thought that that would be the most intriguing to the estates, you know, because it was something very different, you know, like I was I wanted when I made my pitch to the Dali estate and 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 to the Marx estate, I really I wanted to show that like. I was going to do something, you know, that's that other people hadn't necessarily thought of, you know, like, uh, uh, and, um, uh, and also, I had proof that I could pull it off, you know, from my previous book. So Mm -hmm. that was sort of how it all happened. Now, I never dreamed how far we'd get in, 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 in bringing this concept of, 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 you know, being able to read them, read a movie to life. Um, you know, cause originally it was like, Hey, Noah, you know, you want to help me write some lyrics. And then, and then we always had in the back of our head, the idea that we'd actually record the soundtrack, but, uh, it was not until like three months ago that we realized we were actually going to be able to like legitimately record a full soundtrack to an unmade movie. Mm-hmm. And so that final nail is just sort of like. Yeah, it's it's a it's a movie you can read. So, yeah, we're pretty excited. <laughs> I'd I'd love to say a few words, Josh, about uh, your other collaborators too. Yeah. Um, oh, please, please. You know, one of the one of the things I love the most about the book, um, which again will be available in March for all of you, and you can pre-order it now, is uh, it's such a beautiful physical object, and it's a. I don't want to discourage people who might want to buy the the Kindle edition. I'm sure it'll be delightful uh, on your device uh, as well. But I think the, it's a very strong argument for the book in print, the book as a physical object, um, partly because the the art direction throughout the book is just so dazzling. There's not a page of it that uh, doesn't reward a, a very long time staring at it and studying it. And there's so much in it. And that's uh, largely because of the contributions of Manuela Pertega, who is the artist you found. Yeah. Uh, I was really, I thought it was very interesting. You deliberately wanted a Spanish artist. Yeah. Uh, who would be, in some sense, a continuation of of uh, Dolly's national legacy. Tell us uh, how you found her and how you worked with her. This book almost didn't happen about 274 times. One of the times was because I lost my original illustrator. And there was like a number of months where it was just on hold and I didn't know what to do. So I went onto the internet and um, I, I, I searched, I Google searched for like any sort of like, um, like whatever the biggest online portfolio host for artists was. And I found this, this uh, website, uh, which for anyone looking for collaborators in the visual arts, this is like a gold mine. I'm surprised more people don't know or talk about it. Uh, and I, the best part is probably because it's pretty impossible to pronounce right, uh, uh, which I'm going to completely fail at right now. Okay, drum roll, <laughs> please. Dunga. Drum roll, please. Uh, the website is 
behance or behance or bents. I have no idea. You can look it up, but it's it's an amazing place because like uh, artists from all over the world put their portfolios up with contact information um, for collaborating and jobs. And the best part is, is you can, you can search down to the city, state, country zip code of where you're looking for someone. So I looked up where Dali was born, uh, you know, and I looked up the town and I typed it in. And what do you know? Uh, within within 150 miles of his the town he was born and the town he lived in, there were 50 graphic artists, <laughs> and uh, one of and I looked through every one and Manuela her her she was on there and she was listed as Barcelona, which was an hour and a half or so from uh, from uh, where Dali grew up, and I figured well that's close enough for me. And uh, I reached out to her and she would, I, I gave her the pitch and she said that she was in. So it's pretty amazing, you know? And I mean, her, her, and, and Noah, I mean, you're so right. I, I, I can't stress enough that, you know, it, I, uh, I, this is my, this book was my baby for six years, but this book would not be this book without the, you know, artistic team that um, that put the final product together, which includes uh, Noah. It includes uh, you know uh, my 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 complete co-author uh, Manuela, uh, Tim Heidecker, and then uh, Quirk Books. You know they're really responsible for a lot of the uh, you know the layout um, work. So it's totally a um, a group effort. You know, there's also a sort of a collaborator on the project whose work isn't actually in the book. But uh, can we talk about this, Josh? Some of the music that's been, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, since the book came out, um, there's been an inc- a lot of work done on the songs. Um, and uh, Quinn uh, Arbeitman, yeah. How, how do you pronounce Quinn's last name? Behans, Behans, Quinn Behans. Yeah, I mean the music, which uh, I know will will uh, find its way to the public ears uh, before long, is a whole other aspect of this project. Uh, yeah. That's wonderful. You really uh, rounded up a, a, a great stable of, of collaborators, and uh, I'm uh, I'm happy to be one of them. Yeah, Quinn, Quinn, Quinn lives in Japan. <laughs> and and I yeah. knew him from 20 years ago and when we and he lived in Austin, Texas and again, Marx Brothers fan found him uh, we were going to do a Marx Brothers play like 20 years ago it it, it, it it never ended up coming to fruition it was but it was a it was an idea and uh, we had worked on a couple of small theater productions that I put on uh, back in the late 90s in Austin. And over the years, you know, I kept following him on Facebook and, um, you know, we did, I never had anything to talk about with him really for the last 20 years, but I kept him a friend because his posts were just fantastic because they were like him playing like Cole Porter jazz with like these giant Japanese bands, you know, and I just was fascinated with his, you know, with, with, with his turn and, uh, when I saw the finished lyrics, you know, that, that Noah had uh, worked through, I was like, we gotta put these to music. And, um, and then it hit me that Quinn, 
you know, was a composer of jazz. And I, I wrote to him and I said, what do you know about Cole Porter? And the reason Cole Porter is so important is because Salvador Dali dreamed that Cole Porter would write the soundtrack to Giraffes on Horseback Salad. And um, he said, I know a lot. And uh, next thing you know, me and Quinn and, and Noah are, are uh, Facebook texting each other uh, how to make this happen. So yeah, no, Quinn, Quinn's... <laughs> Quinn's like incredible. So yeah, he's, he's, he, and he, he's gone far beyond the call. Like he's taking this incredibly seriously. He, he like booked like, like one of the top recording studios in Japan and he's got like a full orchestra. And I mean, it's, it's impressive. It really it's is. incredibly <laughs> impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's very, it's really cool. And, and I mean, I, I have to take Noah's um, sort of lead a little bit when I basically just sort of let Noah and Quinn kind of go to town because I really trust Noah's sort of um, uh, watermark, you know, for the on, on the authenticity scale. And uh, uh, and so I just it's I, I want to find a way to publish some of Quinn and Noah's back and forths on, on the on the text <laughs> because they're it's really kind of amazing. Like it, it's like they kind of, they're speaking this other language uh, about, you know, about these songs and it's very cool. Very cool. <laughs> it's yeah. it's the, the ancient, the ancient dialogue of Cole Porter. Yeah, exactly. And Marx brothers <laughs> fusion. So yeah, no, it's neat. These guys, these guys are really uh, doing amazing stuff. And uh, I'm just really proud that I had like a vessel that like, that all of these awesome artists could like, you know, put in their, their talent to, you know. Do you have any thoughts about where this uh, book and script may lead? Do you envision it possibly maybe being a, an actual film down the line, an animated film, a live action film? What would be your, what would be your dream end game here? Well, I'd like to do, I'd like to answer that question from the perspective of my wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is, God, I hope this gets turned into a movie someday so that my husband will make a dollar <laughs> to uh, to invest in our children's college education someday. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm perfectly happy. If this is it, this is that's fantastic. Like, I I could not have dreamed of 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 ever getting this far with it, but. Do I dream that it'll be a movie someday or an animated film or something else or a, a live show? Oh, I would love that. And I, I honestly think it deserves it. Um, and I think it would be incredible. Um, and, you know, that's why I do these books that I've done is, and, and the, way, the way I write them in the way that I do, because I'm trying to show that these could have sh- or should have or should be more, you know, uh, or, you know, have, so yeah, I mean, that'd be awesome, both career wise, but also, I I honestly think that, you know, if the, if the project proves anything, it's that there was a movie in this, mm-hmm. that, but you know what, um, you know, I'm sure we can get into this, you know, down the line, but it's like, I don't think, I don't think it should have, or and I know it couldn't have been a movie then, you know, mm. like it probably 
shouldn't have then. Um, but sometimes time and circumstance and understanding, you know, understanding of, of the artist that wrote something that wasn't ready mm-hmm. creates a situation where it's time for it to become something, you know, like, I don't think, I don't think even Dali knew what he was trying to say back then. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I don't think he knew or cared how important what he was actually trying to do was. But, you know, when you're an artist uh, decades later and you're looking back at the artist that was trying to create something's life and you could kind of put some, you could connect some dots that that make the importance of the story they were trying to tell even more timely, you know? And I feel like that's what happened with this. Does that Does that make sense? I'm imagining uh, Falberg putting uh, Sam Wood in charge of uh, directing. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that most interested me, or uh, the biggest revelation for me in looking at your book, was that um, I certainly had always thought it was just a few random ideas, a couple of drawings jotted down, with with no real intention for it to actually turn into anything, Uh, just a little flight of fancy. But, But in actual fact, it was, wasn't it? It was a serious uh treatment that was written up at length um that was actually um presented unbelievable as that may seem yeah and contrary to like what maybe a lot of people know or think dolly actually really did want to make this movie i mean was he was he being dollyish with how he was doing it you know yes like like it was kind of unclear if, how serious he was, I guess, you know, in a way. But it's pretty clear that he had this vision of of breaking into Hollywood and destroying it with surrealism, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, breaking it down. And from what I have researched and what I've taken from it, I think he was genuinely hurt and broken by this first you know, uh, grand attempt at um, take you know taking on Hollywood and making a movie with his uh, with his one of his heroes, which was Harpo. Show it to Louis B. Mayer. What could go wrong? <laughs> Everything, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a shoe in. <laughs> you know, yeah, the time the time and the place just wasn't right. Late late thirties MGM, yeah, wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Well, the idea that the Marx Brothers uh, have appealed to and inspired artists who are not necessarily in the same discipline that they were is an idea that goes back as far as the popularity of the Marx Brothers in vaudeville and especially into their Broadway period. And in order to talk about how the surrealists felt about the Marx Brothers and and how appropriate or inappropriate it is to describe the Marx Brothers as surrealist artists, um, it might be informative to look uh, back at the beginning a little bit um, because the Surrealists uh, and the Theater of the Absurd and the Dada movement, that's one camp that loved the Marx Brothers, but they were pretty beloved across the high art spectrum. And as soon as I'll say she has made it to Broadway, uh, a big fact of the Marx Brothers' lives was being surrounded by people who were perceived as being much higher up the cultural ladder than they were, but who just couldn't get enough of them. Um, the, all the writers um, and intellectuals who, who clustered around the stage door at the casino waiting to uh, make their introductions. 
what is it about the Marx Brothers that has made them, I think, more than other comedians, more than certainly any of their peers, uh, appeal to the intellectual set? And, and uh, their work seems to lend itself to interpretation um, to a degree that's unusual for popular comedians. Uh, what do we make of this? Is it because the Marx Brothers are themselves uh, intellectual heavy hitters? I think it's the iconoclasm more than anything else. I and mean, if you look at, I mean, all all of the uh, the silent comedians before they came along, um, they they also did have a following. You know, there was always a strong contingent among art people and intellectuals to say, you know, I, I I'm totally in tune with this. And if you look at the things that they like, it's it's usually the the uh, countercultural things. It's usually kicking the cop in the ass. It's it's that it's the the spirit of of kind of anarchy and. When the Marx Brothers came along, I, I, I think, you know, they, they just they were the one comedy team that focused on that, that isolated that element and took it to a to a new level. And so I think it was it was the perception of them as iconoclastic more than uh, more than anything else that, that they did um, that made them um, useful as almost as kind of mascots. To, I mean, if you look at, for instance, the Algonquin set, you know, uh, and Kaufman, et cetera, the people that, that not only uh, took them on as, as friends or said they liked them, but actually uh, started working with them. I think it, it's, it's pretty obvious when you look at them, that the relationship goes both ways, that they're both getting um, authenticity out of the relationship. And I think I think that's what it is. It's it's the idea of them as forces of nature. Yes, and you, I was thinking of Groucho's uh, relationship with T.S. Eliot, and how in the letters between the two of them, you can clearly see how much each of those two men is enjoying the uh, admiration of the other. Uh, yes, you're right; it was mutually flattering. Yes, uh, in uh, in his book on the theater of the absurd. Uh, Martin Esselin talks about the silent comedians um, as having been a big influence on the theater of the absurd movement and Ionesco. He says it silent comedy has the dreamlike strangeness of a world seen from outside with the uncomprehending eyes of one cut off from reality. Uh, and that the coming of sound in the cinema killed the tempo and fantasy of that heroic age of comedy, but it opened the way for other aspects of the old vaudeville tradition. Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, and the Marx Brothers exercised their influence on the theater of the absurd. And in Ionesco's The Chairs, the old man impersonates the month of February by, quote, scratching his head like Stan Laurel. And Ionesco himself told the audience at the American premiere of The Shepherd's Chameleon that the French surrealists had nourished him, but that the three biggest influences on his work had been Groucho, Chico, and Harpo Marx. What's wrong? Ionesco didn't like Zeppo? <laughs> and the other thing of course to bear in mind with surrealists is is that we've the kind of the what's come down to us now of of the surrealist movement in kind of you know the the pop culture store of of you know memory bank is a kind of a, a rather a tame uh you know it's, it's basically weirdness isn't it it's basically juxtapositions right. and and dream logic uh you know and uh you know lobsters and clocks and so on but but you know this was an actual serious artistic movement and it was it was genuinely revolutionary i mean they didn't they they didn't want to be cute they they really did want to uh, to do some damage didn't they 
Absolutely true. Yes. And, and they were, they were very serious about themselves. I, I, you're, you're right that surreal, like we use, we throw the word surreal around now as though it just means, as you say, weird, you know, pineapples on pizza. That's so surreal. Uh, but, <laughs> and, and it's used to describe some of the stranger passages in Marx Brothers movie, movies. Uh, it's also used interchangeably with the term Dada, which is not quite the same thing, you know. Um, the Dadaists were, anti-art. They didn't take themselves seriously as artists. Uh, whereas Dali and Magritte were, you know, very skilled painters, very great technicians. They just put their technique in the service of surrealistic ideas because that's what was interesting to them. Uh, whereas the, the Dadaists like Marcel Duchamp exhibiting a urinal at an art gallery and calling it sculpture or, or drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa, that kind of thing. Um, it was sort of an attack on the whole idea of art. So the Marx Brothers as characters are more Dada because they're self-conscious and they're, they rebel against pretentiousness and propriety. Yes. But as artists, they're much closer to the surrealists. They're excellent in their craftsmanship and they're, they're sort of doing what they do without an agenda. Dadaism is a response to the horrors of, of World War I. You know, life is absurd and cruel anyway. So, so let's burn the whole thing down. Uh, the Marx Brothers, they don't really challenge our definition of comedy. They kind of like exemplify our definition of comedy, uh, whereas the Dadaists were looking to like break down the whole idea of, of what we think of as art. Uh, Salvador had a very uh, rocky relationship with his peers, you know, because, well, for many reasons, you know, uh, some political, but also Dali took himself very seriously and he took his art very seriously. And... Um, you know, so there was a, there, he, I mean, he was thrown out of his own movement, you know? Yeah. So um, I, that, I, you know, there's, I find that really interesting, you know, in, in, in relation to what you were just saying, um, you know, about the difference actually between, uh, you know, the, you know, the Dada and, uh, and Dali really. Um, and I wanted to go back actually to, to, uh, to one other point that was made, uh, like, Five minutes ago, uh, which was just dead on about uh, you know the 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 roundtable and and the 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 literary elite uh, were so drawn to uh, the Marx Brothers and when I was working on my uh, my second book uh, about Peter Ivers and in heaven everything is fine, it was about this guy Peter who really was uh, a surrealist. I mean, he, he was an absurdist. He was very much um, a rebel uh, artist. And, um, and he was very much involved in the subculture of the time in the 80s. And um, his, he had all these famous friends. And there's a real parallel between Peter and his friends and peers and... Um, uh, the Marx Brothers and theirs, in that um, people were drawn to Peter that were in the sort of professional comedy world, that were in the professional uh, uh, creative world. They were nothing like him, you know, in, in, in that he was just, f Peter was fearless. He was punk rock. He was, uh, you know, uh, surreal. And meanwhile, people like Harold Ramis 
uh, and David Lynch, you know, they were becoming famous and they had offices and they had assistants <laughs> and they were making quote unquote deals, you know, but what would they do on their time off? They would go to this little punk rock recording studio where they were shooting this like crazy TV show about, you know, that was completely surreal and absurd. And they would hang out there with those guys, you know, the, the, and, and it was because they they wanted to be around and to be inspired by the essence of this unbridled creativity and, you know, inside were very much like the Marx Brothers or like Peter Ivers. But on the outside, they were living these grown up, you know, yeah. real world lives. Mm-hmm. It's self-validation too, isn't it? I mean, you can imagine the Marx Brothers thinking, oh, my God, Alexander Walcott and George Kaufman like us. They like us. But at the same time, Walcott and Kaufman are thinking, isn't it great? These utterly authentic, you know, sort of almost street artists um, are responding to, to our overtures. And and probably neither one yeah, yeah. quite 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 got it that that it was that it, you know that it was totally mutual. Yeah, totally. And yet it must be said that although there are lots of affinities between the Surrealists and their brethren and the Marx Brothers, there are also many important differences. And in the commentary that members of the Surrealist movement made about the Marx Brothers, there sometimes seems to be a giant disconnect between what these guys seem to have seen in the films and, and what really is there. Um, and, and that's worth talking about. It, it must be said too that surrealism, because it was a social movement as well as an art movement, uh, there's a tremendous amount of surviving theory and dialogue about it, which holds up, I think, much less well than the work itself. Um, the paintings of Dolly are still you know, wonderful to look at. And you can really, you can really enjoy and learn from his art. Um, but the surrealist movement, the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of social and artistic theory that they cranked out, um, sometimes sits strangely on modern ears. Um, and I thought we might talk a little bit about some of the differences and discrepancies in uh, an essay called Who's Your Dada? The Marx Brothers at Paramount, Renata Jackson quotes uh, the film historian Gerald Wheels. Uh, This is what he says. Some admirers of the Marx Brothers invoke words like surrealism and Dadaism to describe their work, a usage that is as misleading in fact as it is complementary in intention. The French movements seem too programmatic to describe the Marx Brothers and their movies. The Marx Brothers movies had more to do with popular taste and prejudices than with intellectual theories about the restrictive nature of society, psychology, and language. Bollocks. (laughs) 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 Well, there certainly, it certainly is true that the intention behind the Marx Brothers movies did not have to do with the, you know, breaking down uh, uh, the restrictive nature of society, psychology, and language. Uh, that may well have been their effect. But um, do you sometimes feel, uh, this is a, a question for the room, rubbed the wrong way by hearing the Marx Brothers discussed this way, um, or, or at least feel that there's something that doesn't ring true? Well, I think you've pinpointed the, the distinction, isn't it, between uh, intent and effect. I mean, there's, there's no question as to the, as to the effect. Um, I just think that if you, if you go too far 
in uh, in ascribing um, motives. And, you know, it's fun up to a point. I mean, obviously, you know, they were obviously they you know they knew they knew what was different about them compared to to other you know more mainstream things. They they got Harpo in particular in Harpo speaks. He's quite articulate, isn't he? About about why he says this is why we're popular because we do certain things that other people just think about or speculate on. You know, so you know they knew they knew what they had. But, uh, you know, the idea that they had an actual uh, agenda, um, I think, in a funny sort of a way, kind of detracts from them. Whereas, you know, the people who who pursue that line think think they're adding or, or, you know, uh, revealing. It's like an extension, the ultimate extension of the reinterpretation of uh, Duck Soup as anti-war satire in the 60s. It's taken that to an extreme and, you know, defining their whole career by it. Yes. I mean, if you, if you say, you know, if, if somebody were to say, you know, Duck Soup is the most brilliant film to use as uh, an anti-war argument, as a demonstration of the folly of war, etc., etc., then I'm completely on board. I mean, obviously that it is. It's just when you just take that tiny extra step and say, this is what they were actually doing, that I have to pull back and say, mm, they weren't actually. I, I, I mean, do intentions really matter because in art? Because, like, if I was meaning to do something else and then it was taken a different way and it became important that way, am I going to be angry that, you know, like, maybe, maybe me personally as an artist I would be, but, but how, what that art becomes, isn't that sort of what's important yeah yeah i i think so and and it also seems that in the context of the the time that the marx brothers were emerging even even aside from their intentions during that period between the wars you know when the marx brothers did their great work um there was something in the zeitgeist. I mean, this is the time when when Dadaism and Surrealism have their their moments as art movements, um, and the twenties is is known as the era of wonderful nonsense. And you saw it in in light verse. You saw it in newspaper humor. Uh, there was a, a tremendous appetite for silliness um, and for for breaking away from the kind of conservative structure of of what literature had been. Uh, I don't think the Marx Brothers saw themselves as part of a an art movement, um, but you're right, Josh. Whether or not they did, um, clearly the soup that everyone was swimming in at the time had a lot to do with um, uh, ju- uh, surprising juxtapositions of ideas and humor that didn't necessarily rely on. Um, on uh, on the nose buttons. It, it makes me think of alternative rock. Okay, F- just stick with me here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> um, that's where the pilgrims live. Right, that's right? <laughs> alternative rock. <laughs> no, like I mean, like the Pixies, Nirvana. They didn't think that what they were doing was going to lead to this like movement that was going to like create magazines like Spin Magazine, in which like you know these you know, these uh, rock journalists were going to be like, you know, debating, you know, you know, the importance of, of, uh, you know, this album or this song or how to change the world or whatever. It's like, they were just making music, you know, like they, I promise they did not intend for flannel shirts to become like, you know, (laughs) like, uh, uh, you know, the, the symbol of a movement, you know, like, um, 
it's just an, I never really thought much about or really cared about like you know the 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 Marx brother what they what their intentions were you know like they were just freaking funny and amazing and brilliant and and it hit me you know in this place and um i you know now if i met them maybe it's like you know meeting you know never meet your heroes you know maybe you know maybe that would you know destroy everything but i'm you know never had the chance so in in my mind there's a purity there and it i i never sort of question that i don't know this is Antonin Artaud, a theorist and critic and thinker, um, and, and one of the guys who's always quoted in discussions about the Marx Brothers' appeal to the intellectual and artistic elite. Uh, Antonin Artaud went to see Monkey Business, and this is what he had to say about it. In Monkey Business, we again have the Marx Brothers, all with their own individual characters, brimming with confidence and manifestly ready to do battle with the rest of the world. Except that whereas in Animal Crackers, each character seems to degenerate progressively, we see from the start their clowning antics and cavortings, and it is only toward the end that things get more serious, with objects, animals, noises, the master and his servants, the host and his guests, all becoming more and more frenzied, frantic, and rebellious and accompanied by a rapturous and sometimes lucid commentary from one of the brothers, carried away by the mood that is generated as the film progresses. This is a commentary that seems to be both astounded and transitory. Nothing is as hallucinating and at the same time as terrible as this kind of manhunt, as this battle between the rivals, as this pursuit into a cowshed or a barn festooned with spider webs, while men, women, and beasts all act out their parts and find themselves surrounded by a pile of miscellaneous objects whose, represent, whose respective movements or noises will all turn out to be relevant. Did this guy even see monkey business? <laughs> I'll have what he's having. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I can't help but wonder, is this kind of thinking a, a more natural result than we might think of seeing monkey business translated into French? <laughs> maybe it's not the version of monkey. Maybe it's not the Marx Brothers uh, version of monkey business. <laughs> you think it's the <laughs> the fifties yeah. version? Of Monkey I, I think you might <laughs> be onto something. I actually think you might be onto something with the French thing uh, there, because no, uh, uh, truthfully, because you know, like I always wonder if when when I'm watching a French film, if it if it if it's actually not as like poetic and amazing as it looks to me when I'm like watching it, you know, in French with subtitles, like if I was actually French and watching it in French, would it actually be boring? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the problems of like translating the, especially Groucho Chico dialogue into another language. I mean, puns are always a challenge for translators at the same way. Rhyme is a, is a real challenge for translators. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I wonder if like maybe the Marx Brothers dialogue seemed a further degree removed from reality in translation. Yeah, and yeah. We need to get Vigo Sivanto in on this because he's he's sort of the, the, the expert on, on this. But but yes, you're absolutely right. When you have things like puns, um obviously that that unless unless you're incredibly lucky and by sheer coincidence it, it, you, you can find a a word in the other language you know the, the the two words in the other language work the same way which is you know a million to one basically what the translator has to do is write their own jokes which is you know not in the job description is it if you're if you're a, if you're somebody whose job if you spend every day of your life <laughs> yeah. trying, 
translating yeah. f- uh, films into your language suddenly yeah. you're presented with this film that is full of puns and you have to invent effectively new jokes that are supposedly yeah. as good but yeah. could be worse or could be better yeah like dollars taxes yeah <laughs> exactly yeah you know i mean all these uh, you know innuendo in your window no i'm sure there's no language other than english where innuendo the word that means innuendo sounds like you know coming through the fenetra so suddenly you're you know you're you're a con- comedy writer and you're just here to translate uh, and and i do think as uh, as josh said that that inevitably films that are not in your own language have a have a mystique they have a sheen and the other the i mean it's, it's different with american movies i guess because american movies you know the whole world sort of sees all of them but but it, with certainly with other countries the films you see are, have already been pre-selected you know i mean if france or the, the the run-of-the-mill french film unfortunately we never get to see we only get to see the ones that are felt to have you know crossover appeal so i i get the feeling that with the Marx Brothers, because they were different, which they which they clearly were, because they were doing something that the other comedians weren't doing, um, in a funny sort of a way, uh, the opposite to what we might think would be true is true, which is that it does gain in translation. It does seem even more different. What might be an interesting experiment is to take one of these translations and translate it back into English. Huh. <laughs> like Mark Twain with the jumping frog. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this room um, team uh, monkey business or not? As far as monkey business being a, a masterpiece? Yeah, because I mean, I for me, it uh, it always holds a very, very dear place because I think, I'm pretty sure it was the first one that I saw and definitely one of the ones I watched the most as a kid. Yeah. I think I may hold it a little lower than, than most mm. just because I miss Groucho and that authoritative role mm. and i think you know he's a bit diminished there even though mm. the material itself is still fantastic mm-hmm. i mean i think very highly of monkey business mm. I, I i put it you know not not quite at but but close to the top mm. um and uh episode seven of the marx brothers council podcast too late that's monkey business already uh, <laughs> has a discussion mm. uh, at length mm. of, of how it uh, i don't know its place in the canon you know and how it differs uh from some of their other masterpieces, but I, I do think it's one of their masterpieces. Yeah. Um, and it is, and it is also, I think because this is the period when the Marx brothers go to Hollywood and, um, when talkies themselves are being made proficiently enough to become the dominant kind of film. Uh, this is when the Marx brothers start to get that kind of attention. I think it's during the monkey business and horse feathers period. That's when all of this commentary starts pouring in from France and um, artists across the ocean start taking notice. And other than room service, it might be, you can make a case that it's the most experimental and uh, ambitious thing they ever did, trying to deviate from what we consider the normal Marx formula. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and also because it's the first time they're not making a film based on a stage piece, uh, they were in some sense freer to to go surreal, you know, and to, to use the language of film, um, it's as a vehicle for their humor, uh, that, that certainly kicks in, in monkey business and continues through the next two paramounts. Um, you know, uh, some of, uh, Salvador Dali's, uh, the, the experiments in film that did get made, 
give us an interesting sense, not just of what giraffes on horseback salad might have been like, uh, but of how this surrealist vision would have incorporated itself into the medium of popular film. Unchien Andalou is the short film that Dolly made with Louis Benoit, which, you know, is a short, surrealist, silent film full of bizarre imagery. Um, but some of the techniques are recognizable from comedy. The, the image of uh, a human hand with uh, ants crawling out of a hole in it, looking very much like the ants in, on the uh, pocket watch in, in Dolly's uh, Persistence of Memory. Uh, you know, that's the same kind of technique that they would use to make a live dog come out of the tattooed doghouse on Harpo's chest in Duck Soup. And the dream sequence that Dolly worked on for uh, Hitchcock in uh, Spellbound, which looks very much like a Dolly painting come to life, uh, you know, reminds me quite a bit of uh, the Manuela Pertega illustrations in your book, Josh. One thing that I read, I did a lot of reading on uh, when I was doing my my research uh, on Dolly and, and film was, you know, he did a lot of recycling, like, and not in a bad way, like not, not in like a, not in like a, you know, lazy way. Like that was sort of, I think, part of what he did, you know, like he, he would take ideas from other pieces and either expand on them or rework them or rethink them. And um, you notice that a lot with what happened with giraffes on horseback salad uh, in that, you know, he did these beautiful sketches, you know, that, that were his version of, you know, sort of shot, shot lists, you know, then after, you know, when it wasn't made, he took, he took a lot of that imagery and used it in the future for other things. He had his obsessions, uh, like any artist. And they say, you know, a filmmaker only makes one movie their entire life, you know, like, uh, Mm. they make, they make the same movie, you know, just in different ways, trying to get it right. You know, and Wait, this, uh, is, this isn't the Woody Allen podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, it's, I think it was George A. Romero, wasn't it? Uh, no, exactly. Well, you know, Woody Allen is obviously a prime example of that, but Spielberg, you know, like is a, you know, is a, is, is a more family friendly one. Uh, and uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that crap? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and, and that's, that was what Dali was doing, not just with his imagery from giraffes, but with, from his silent movie, uh, surrealist movies, uh, onward. And, you know, yes, uh, as Noah said, he would go on to do, um, uh, some other, you know, the, 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 um, Hitchcock piece. And then there was the unfinished, um, Destino, which uh, which uh, was a collaboration with Disney, which, um, you know, they actually in recent years went back and finished. It was a short. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I think so great about what Manuela did is she took that idea and, and used it in the imagery and storytelling of, of, of our book uh, by recycling um, and rethinking just as Dali did, uh, you know, some of these iconic imagery ideas. And um, it's uh, one of the stories, uh, 
that that I discovered in in my research is that Dali actually had had the idea for the surrealist woman uh, as a story or as a character uh, before writing Giraffes on Horseback Salad and before making it a Marx Brothers movie. He had this sort of story idea and then he was inspired by his time with Harpo uh, to finish it and to basically... Uh, use it as a Marx Brothers vehicle. Manuela's uh, illustrations, as well as your text, Josh, uh, do such a nice job of continuing that idea of Dolly's. You know, as you point out so rightly, Dolly, like many artists, kept reincorporating familiar images into his paintings. And a lot of those icons from the Dollyverse pop up in the book, you see the meditative rose from Dolly's painting floating at one point, um, motifs like uh, elephants on stilts, uh, the whole idea of, of uh, flaming giraffes, you know, that pops up more than once in, in Dolly. And, yeah. and uh, it's, a, it's a major theme, of course, in the book. Uh, and so it's, it's so nice the way it draws on these canons and continues what all of these artists were doing. My, my whole take, like... Uh, on giraffes on horseback salad and sort of the the framework I used for completing it was that that giraffes on horseback salad is actually about him. It, he's actually the protagonist. Uh, he melded himself with Harpo as the character of Jimmy, and he lives through Harpo um, in this story. Uh, he is the Spanish businessman that comes to America to uh, es- escape war. I mean, it's just very clear what 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 was going on, whether it was subconscious or not. Like like the few notes that he wrote about um, who Jimmy, the lead character, was. It's like, oh, this is him, <laughs> and then the idea that Harpo would play Jimmy, which is him, to me, and, and, you know, that was like, you know, that's how the whole idea of, of making this story concrete came about. It's like, let's, let's look at Salvador Dali as an artist, and let's look at what appealed to him about the Marx Brothers, and that's going to fill in the narrative aspects that are missing and again this was just this was my take on it my interpretation was if someone like Thalberg or or a studio head was to actually make this they would think about these things they would think how are we going to make this you know edible for for the audience and so I feel like whoever was going to wrangle Dolly's vision would have looked at it in this way, you know, like would have looked at it in who actually is this protagonist and what, what, what is their hero's journey here and why. And it all, to me, goes back to Dali. And so Manuela's take on bringing his iconic imagery and sort of carrying it over it made so much sense to do that because this is really the story of 
a surrealist who's lost, who's a refugee, and in in a mad world. And what what's what's the uh, what's the obvious thing that's going to happen? He's going to become Harpo Marx. <laughs> It's always uh, seemed to me that uh, one of the differences between surrealism and comedy uh, is that comedy is trying to be funny and often succeeds. And in my earlier investigations of the Marx Brothers, uh, one thought I, I used to have a lot about the sort of uh, interest that Salvador Dali took in them uh, was that surrealism is in some ways, it's like comedy without the laughs. Um, you know, it, it involves absurd or bizarre juxtapositions of things, but it, it's not really trying to make you laugh, which uh, in some ways seems easier to students of comedic art. Uh, like, oh, well, if you remove the imperative to make people laugh and all you have to do is be weird, uh, <laughs> what a relief. Uh, so you're saying Go West is uh, surrealistic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's bizarre, yes. Uh, so you're saying Eddie Izzard is a surrealist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I have a more charitable view of, of all of this than I did then when I, it was the most important thing to me was to demonstrate that the Marx Brothers were superior to everything else in the world. And uh, now I feel like, you know, it's all worthwhile and it's all part of the soup. But, um, but you know, uh, when, when looking over what, le what Dali left behind in terms of his notes and his sketches, I, I think many of us have had the same response that Joe Adamson documents so beautifully in his book, which is, you know, this is all very interesting, but it does not seem like it would have added up to anything we would recognize as a Marx Brothers movie. Um, I now feel like yeah, that's true, but that's also fine. Uh, Dolly wanted to use the Marx Brothers as icons, you know, and have them running through the landscape of his imagination. And yes, why, that's a perfectly legitimate way to use them, just as making room service was a perfectly legitimate idea that wasn't quite what we think of as a Marx Brothers movie. So in a way, it's almost better, I think, that it has waited its time until now, because it would be almost a misuse of, of the real them. Um, it's m much better now that they're gone uh, for somebody like Josh to come along and, and do this thing. And, and yeah, wouldn't it be great if it was made into an animated movie using them as icons to do yes. something different? Yeah. And it also must be said that Josh and, and his collaborator, Tim Heidecker have done something with giraffes on horseback salad that, that Dali was just not equipped to do, which is write a lot of jokes, make it funny. Um, yeah. And so, the book is funny, and it does contain recognizable Marx Brothers humor uh, that's not really to be found in, in Dolly's notes. I, all I have to say to that is, thank you, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you did. There's, there's no denying it. There are jokes in this book. And, and, thank uh, God. <laughs> one of the pleasures of it is, uh, is the humor. Uh, there are times when you've, uh, I don't want to give away any punchlines, but you have in many places taken the format of a recognizable Marx Brothers bit and just tweaked it just enough to use mm -hmm. it, just cast it in a new light. Uh, so that uh, I think even if you picked up this book with no background about surrealism or and not knowing much about Dolly, um, you know, you would be uh, hypnotized by the dazzling visuals. But you would also, you know, there are many pockets in it of, you know, what we might call vintage Marx Brothers stuff. I have nothing to add to that. 
That was that was perfect. <laughs> I was just transfixed by the phrase "vintage Marx Brothers style." Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Momentarily well. dazzled. I'm back now. <laughs> Josh has nothing to say about this other than the 220 pages he's published. <laughs> well, you do mention that uh, sometimes Dolly just left holes where it said Marx Brothers antics. So. Right. Right. Marx Brothers antics ensue. <laughs> yeah. Well, but boy, is that uh, is that a phrase that haunts my dreams? Yeah. You know, I mean, that is uh, one of the similarities, as we were you're pointing out at the top of the show. Between, uh, I mean, in one sense, you couldn't have two more different worlds than the world of I'll say she is, and uh, you know, the Broadway comedy reviews of the 1920s, and the uh, world of the surrealists and their agendas and their style. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, the people uh, people who worked with the brothers or wanted to work with the brothers left behind lots of pages that say, insert the Marx Brothers. Right, right. And in, in some way, uh, you and I, Josh, have both uh, taken it upon ourselves to try to insert the Marx Brothers yeah. here. That, that, that could be on our gravestones. Is, uh, it probably will be. Is uh, Actually, that's on their gravestones. <laughs> Is uh, is Dolly? How far back, Josh, does your interest in Dolly go? I, I can't help but notice uh, the Pixies are a big uh, part of your life, and you've written about them and and uh, worked with Black Francis. And uh, isn't there a Dolly reference in a Pixies lyric? Uh, yes, um, and actually, no, it's true. Like when I got into the Pixies in high school and got their album um, uh, that had the the the, the first song uh, "Debaser" on it. This the album was Doolittle. Uh, you know, you're 16 years old and you're like, what does that mean? And so, you know, you like discuss it with your friends and, you know, you can't Google it at the time. But, you know, how did we find out that it, it was probably an article, you know, in some alternative rock magazine, you know, like had him mention that, you know, it was a song about, you know, Salvador Dali's surrealist movie. And then you're like, oh, I got to see that movie. And, um, I don't know the first time I saw, I, it might've been in film school because, you know, it was really hard to see, um, you know, weird surrealist movies uh, back before the internet, um, uh, unless you went to the art house cinemas and, and stuff. But in, in, in college, I, we watched a lot of surrealist movies and of course they spoke to me. Um, I mean, I was a weird kid, you know, like I was in like, I had like, I had like a rock band that was like half, Pixies, half um, Genesis, uh, half King Crimson. You know, we were weird, man. We were very uh, that's three halves. That's it's, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. Of you're halves. right. That is a lot of halves. Yeah, um, uh, we were. <laughs> that's so. We surreal. were so surreal, man. Uh, but you know, like, so I was like writing really surreal stuff when I was like fourteen, fifteen, and again, I'm I'm sure it had to do with you know growing up on the Marx Brothers and and all that, and and so. Um, so yeah, like I was really into uh, absurdism, you know, from a young age, and um, and um, when I found out my heroes, the Pixies, you know, were referencing Salvador Dali, you know, it was like that even made them that even made Dali cooler, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so yeah, you know, like and and I got into to surrealist uh, surrealist cinema from you know not just from France, but. Like, you know, I, I always considered um, um, Werner Herzog to be surrealist. I was a big fan of his movies and absurd, you know. Um, have you guys seen the movie Strozek? 
uh, it's Werner Herzog, one of his early movies. You should totally see it because uh, it's a great example of like absurd surrealist, uh, dark though, uh, absurd surrealist. Of course, it's German. That, but uh, you know, like um, so. Yeah, uh, Strozek is is a great example of like um, another country's version of surrealism. I feel and and um, the lead character doesn't speak very often in it. And so in a way he's sort of this dark version of a silent comedy actor. So, yeah. Incidentally, Josh, um, are you aware of our prior uh, tying together of, of the Marxes and the Pixies? No. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it on the, Please. I'll put it on the council again. Mm. Um, a couple of years ago, I staged a Marx Brothers festival here in, in Bath mm-hmm. and um, I wanted an introductory, a little introductory film to, to get everybody, you know, whipped up right at the start. Mm. So I, I went, I went to Bob, who's a video editor supreme. And I said, I want, I want about, you know, three or four minutes, five minutes of really fast cutting, you know, the very best moments of the Marx Brothers. Mm. And I want it set to Here Comes Your Man. Ah, that's awesome. And the reason for that was, I, t- I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the film uh, Gianni Elidone, um, Salt of Life? No. Gianni de Gregorio's Italian film. It's a, a gorgeous, brilliant, hilarious Italian film, but it, it, it ends with him accidentally uh, taking drugs while he's out walking his dog and he has these hallucinations and so on. Um, and the, the final scene is set to to here comes your man and oh, it just wow. i was i was in the cinema with it and it just it just the whole audience kind of almost hovered above it just had a brilliant effect and i thought mm. god i i want to put the marx brothers to this song mm. um and so that's what we did and um it, it, it it's great so i'll put it mm. on i'll put it on the council and oh, cool. you can uh, you can see what you make of it yeah anyway forget that back to the show okay uh, well the discussion of uh Werner Herzog and and uh, makes me think. I wonder what you guys make of uh, Ionesco and his connection to the Marx Brothers. I, to me, it's a little complicated because, uh, on one hand, I'm tempted to put Ionesco in the same box with the Surrealists and say he's a, an important artist who admired the Marx Brothers, and you can see why he did. Uh, but what he was doing was really quite different. Uh, but on the other hand. Although Ionesco's plays, you know, he didn't write jokes. You would never confuse him with uh, George Kaufman. Uh, unlike uh, the Surrealists, he he wrote for the theater, and his plays are funny. I mean, they're not they they're not exactly comedies. They don't contain jokes. It's mostly the kind of dissociative juxtaposition of language, kind of a parody of of the whole idea of communicating with each other, um, and yet. Um, put in the mouths of actors, you know, and subjected to all the things you can't avoid in the theater, like timing and emphasis. Ionesco does play pretty funny and seems like maybe it's halfway between what, what the Marx Brothers were doing. And, you know, it's it's a middle ground between comedy and surrealism. I feel that way about um, a, a number of absurdist uh, playwrights, actually, you know, um, I, to be honest, I'm not as familiar with uh, Ionesco as I am, say, um, you know, like Waiting for Godot and um, mm-hmm. the Zoo Story. The Zoo Story. Sure. Oh, man. The Zoo Story had a huge profound effect on me uh, when I was younger. And again, it's not, it's, it's not Marx Brothers funny, but 
but it, it's got that absurdity and that, um, you know, there, there's, there's a connection there, you know, it's, a, there's the, there's the, it, it, it's the part of the, the Marx brothers surrealism that doesn't have the jokes and gags, but has, you know, the, the, the other players in, in an absurd world without the ability to be funny. <laughs> Well, long ago, when I f- was first exploring all of this, I read Ionesco on paper. I read The Bald mm-hmm. Soprano, and I thought, you got to be kidding me. You know, this is like, uh, whatever its merit, uh, it, it's it's not in the same universe as the Marx Brothers. Then I saw it performed live in the theater, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different experience with timing and rhythm and playing to the audience. And I thought, oh, okay, I can absolutely see why this makes people think of the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. An awful lot of these playwrights, uh, you you get the feeling that they they're kind of writing with with old comedians in mind uh, as as their as their dream casting. I mean uh, Beckett, you know, actually did sort of write with with Buster Keaton in mind, didn't he? And there's there's this this Buster Keaton project film, yeah, uh, with, with with Beckett, uh, um, you know, and Stan Laurel as well. Obviously, you know, Laurel and Hardy should be in Waiting for Godot. I mean, they could easily do that, and um. I think, however, however different the, the 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 thing ends up, I I get the feeling that very often, um, the, the the initial reference point, in terms of what they're seeing in their minds, is is uh, are, are old comedians, because they're great actors, aren't they? I mean, comedians by definition, yeah, absolutely, are skillful, graceful actors. In what, which was written by Beckett uh, during World War Two, <laughs> this is a quotation. I helped to lay out this darling place, said the old man. In that case, said Arthur, perhaps you can tell me the name of this extraordinary growth. That's what we call a hardy laurel, said the old man. (laughs) So they were very deliberate in trying to align themselves with these comedians. Another strange pairing is that um, there was another lost project, actually. Famous uh, Russian filmmaker uh, Andrei Tarkovsky uh, had begun working on a movie project with Charlie Chaplin at one point that never came about. I never knew that. When, when wow. was that? I was afraid you were going to ask me for anything other than <laughs> that information. <laughs> Tell us all about it, please. <laughs> That's literally, like, I, I really, you can look it up. It's true. Hmm. I can tell you, um, as a follow-up to that fact, that... Um, uh, when Tarkovsky was asked what his 10 favorite films of all time were, uh, one of them was a Chaplin film. Please don't ask me which one. <laughs> <laughs> well, when when well, was he asked? Please don't ask me what year he was asked. Oh, 1972. 1972. <laughs> and, and, it, and, it was, and it was City Lights. It was City Lights. Ah. Suck it. Um, so I- <laughs> <laughs> You're the fifth person to say that to me today. <laughs> Sight and Sound magazine over here um, does it does the ten greatest films of all time every every ten years, mm-hmm. and they they petition a load of critics, and they also petition a load of 
directors and um the last uh 1992 uh which was the last time that that um within a 10 year span that fellini was alive uh he gave his 10 favorite films which were very interesting in that a three of them were his own films and i think he was the only director to do that um <laughs> but also the, the remainder were all were all old comedies uh city lights was one of them and the marx brothers uh were there as well and he added a little commentary to his choices and he said uh, just the other day um i won't woke up in the middle of the night i couldn't sleep i went downstairs to get a glass of water and flicked on the television and duck soup was playing i wanted to go back to bed but i couldn't i had to stay and uh within minutes uh tears of laughter were rolling down my cheeks Aww. you just picture fellini uh, crying and laughing <laughs> watching the marx brothers <laughs> Uh, and he was one of the many uh, elevated artists who wanted to work with the Marx Brothers. Didn't he want to cast Groucho in Satyricon? He tried to cast him twice. Yes, he he um, he asked him to be in Juliet of the Spirits. Um, ah. uh, uh, and Groucho, I, I think mainly because of the traveling issue, uh, said no. But he was he was quite flattered, I think. So then uh, when Satyricon came along, yes, he tried a new tack of just saying he was going to be in it and hoping for the best. <laughs> right. <laughs> along with Mae West and I think a few others as well. He just said, yeah, we're going to have it. And uh, again, unfortunately, it, it, it didn't happen. But uh, uh, that would have been something to see. I would have so much rather have seen that than, uh, than Skidoo. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure about that? I mean, (laughs) well, uh, whether you're Fellini or Tarkovsky or uh, Salvador Dali or Josh Frank, uh, it's one thing to uh, envision a project like this with the personalities of great comedians um, melding with some other artistic sensibility. It's quite another thing to actually make it happen. And uh, as with uh, my experience with experiences with Alsace, she is uh one of the great things about giraffes on horseback salad is you know it's now something you can hold in your hand um or at least in march when it's uh, widely available uh it'll be something you can hold in your hands and you know one of the most satisfying things in my experience has been that now after all of this effort you know if people research i'll say she is google it or something there's, you know, exponentially more there to learn than there was before. And that's true, too. I mean, if you had uh, Googled Salvador Dali and the Marx Brothers together uh, some months ago, even, you would have gotten Dali's original notes and sketches and lots of people commenting on the fact that Dali wanted to work with them. Uh, Now there's a whole work of art to explore. um, And to actually realize anything is an achievement. Similarly, if you look up uh, Salvador Dali in, in the index of either of my two Marx Brothers books, you will find references to, to the project that are, uh, what is the word? I suppose sniffy. They're, oh. um, they're, they're, I'll be honest, they're fairly no, negative. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but, you know, uh, I, I, with my hand on my heart, with my hand on my heart, I must say your, your book has has turned me around i mean i'm not oh, i'm nice. not a, a fan of dali and the surrealists but but uh, just the realization that this was a genuine project and that and that uh mm. so you know so much more thought went into it than uh, than i'd realized um that that's um has been a, has genuinely been a a revelation for me yes and, and on a serious note i just want i would really like to know how you uh plan on handling the blowback from the zeppo contingent ah <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right. Well, look, you know, at first I was a little like worried about that and stuff, but then I realized that 
it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, no, that that he's not in it. I can't that, blame you for no, Zeppelin. no. That he's that he's not in it. He that it, it, it was uh, you know it was Dolly's fault. You know, it was Dolly's fault. <laughs> it's also 1937. I mean, b- because yeah. uh, we we associate Dolly, and so we think of it as being part of the Paramount period, and uh, that's why Adamson very appropriately places his discussion of surrealism in his chapter on horse feathers. Uh, it somewhat obscures the fact that Dolly and Harpo happened in 37, and if this movie had been made, it, you're correct, Josh, to place it in the MGM period, because that's when they were talking. So Zeppo was, was no longer part of the team. Well, with that said, though, I will say there were two or three sort of Easter egg uh, fan service things. When I say fan service, I mean myself included, uh, that I really wanted to put in there. And due to timing, uh, as far as like, uh, I'd done like sort of one final draft that I really wanted the publisher to use, but it was too late um, like uh, to make... They were able to make like 85% of the changes in this last draft, but there was three that involved like a couple of extra pages that they weren't able to do. And they have promised me that if the book um, gets a second edition, that they will add them. So it's really up to Marx Brothers fans to buy uh, 30,000 copies of the book. (laughs) And then... They can buy the second edition with the additional pages. Uh, I'm no, but uh, half joking. But what those Easter egg ideas were, one included Zeppo, and uh, the big one, which I was really so I was pretty crushed that it didn't get in. Was I had a great a great call out and honoring of Margaret Dumont. I did. Uh. I was so so pumped to put it in there. And um, it was, it was like, because people were going to be like reading the whole book and be like, where's Margaret Dumont? Where's Margaret Dumont? Like, and then the payoff, it was, it was like a, an end joke that paid off her not being in it. Now, again, Dali made no mention of her being in his movie. Uh, so again, not my fault, but, um, but I had, I had the perfect way of putting her in and, um, I'm really hoping I get the opportunity to add it back in um, uh, if if someday I get a second edition. And uh, those were the two big ones. It was there was going to be I was going to have a Zeppo moment and I was going to have my Margaret Dumont uh, moment. Um, so, yeah. So hopefully hopefully those will get to be back in there at some point. Well, I, on the subject of Zeppo, I have uh, I couldn't help noticing while uh, looking into Dolly for this podcast and for uh, working on the lyrics for your book, Josh, that, uh, you know, there's an image that occurs frequently in Dolly's paintings. That's a kind of bizarre self-portrait that he would use. And it's a sort of face in profile with ridiculously long eyelashes. There's often a nose coming out of a nose. Um, but it looks a little bit like Zeppo's profile. It's a, it's a, a nose and a forehead that are sort of continuous and, and very long. Um, and that's uh, it's sort of Dolly himself also had a, a slightly Zeppo-like profile, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess is why this uh, surreal self-portrait that he kept using, uh, it's not, um, it's not un-Zeppo-like. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, you reminded me um, when you talk about uh, there is a joke, isn't there? I was looking at the book again today. Um, it, it, that is Darley's own, unless I unless I misunderstood it, uh, where he's dancing cheek to uh, Groucho is dancing cheek to cheek with uh, a woman, um, and is clearly finding it uncomfortable. So he takes a spoon and scoops part of her cheek away, and then and then rests his chin. Yeah. In the um, that no, that it's not you know it's not really a Marx Brothers joke, but it you know he, he is obviously thinking in terms of jokes, isn't no, it? And it, yeah. that is funny. No, it's true. And, and in the book, um, I, in, one, in one section uh, of the biographical part, there's, there's a list of, from, from his notebook of some of his gag ideas. And they're in the book as well. Like they're, 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 they were put into the story. But they're totally nuts and really bizarre. And <laughs> if, you're, if, if you're into like dark comedy, then absolutely he put some jokes in there, you know, like... Um, you know, there was some serious subversive stuff, you know, um, and that was definitely one of them. So he definitely did come up with his own version of Marx Brothers jokes, you know, or, you know, tried to for sure. Well, I wanted to ask you the question, which I think is is the one question that's on on everybody's mind, which is in the course of this project, you had to negotiate with the Marx estate and the Dali estate. Which was the biggest pain in the ass? <laughs> um, uh well, um, it was, it, it, well, you know, um, <laughs> flounder, flounder. Um, okay. Tell us which was the least biggest pain in the ass. I was very lucky. That's all I can say is that I was very lucky to reach out to both at the time that I did and with the project that I did. You know, because I feel like I, I don't think it's just because I'm charming. You know, I feel like it's because I had a really special idea and I presented it in a way where both parties saw, you know, that this wasn't about making a biography of the Marx Brothers. You know what I mean? Or this wasn't about taking something that Dolly had already done and doing something bigger and different with it. This was a project that none of these parties had really thought about doing something with. It was a hypothetical. Know? It was, yeah, you know, and so... It's a hypothetical. It, it was so clear that this was, this was something that was so not of the same ilk of, you know, what, what I think over the decades other people had wanted to do. Now, I will say that... Um, and actually, you know, once... Um, I made my, I, once I was able to make my pitch to the Marx estate, like they were, they were incredibly, just incredibly helpful and, and, and incredibly, um, supportive, you know, cause I, I did a lot of, I did a lot of homework beforehand. I had a good publisher. I had a great artistic team. And I, and I think, uh, you know, part of the reason, uh, that it was, uh, not, incredibly difficult with the Marx estate was I had already, you know, I already had the Dali foundation on board and, you know, the package was ready to go. Now it's hard enough to get people on a telephone call or get an email response when you're in the same time zone and you speak the same language. But in order to get this project done, I literally had to, for about three months, I had to wake up at two in the morning and start calling the Dali Foundation 
every 20 minutes until seven in the morning in hopes that they would answer and, you know, I'd be able to move the project along. It was, that was the only, that was the only time I really thought that this might fall apart is just trying to get everything sorted out with, you know, with the foundation in Spain it's hard to communicate yeah. with them because their whole office, all the clocks are just dripping. They're all dripping over the all over uh, their siesta and they their holidays are whack. Okay? Like, they literally <laughs> take off for the entire summer. So, like, if if on July 8th you haven't taken care of your business, you know, you're not getting anything done until August 31st, you know? Um, but yeah, no, but it was great. I mean, it was very exciting, you know, that um, both of these estates um, helped me get as far as I did. And I'm, I'm honestly just forever grateful. And it was it was a, a bit a bit a bit of luck, a bit of um, bootstrapping and um, a lot of um, financial investment on my part, uh, just in, in in pulling it all together, mainly with, you know, the publisher fully supported the book, but I mean, it was really, you know, it's up to the author to, to, to pull it all together. So, you know, uh, before I, I worked on this for three and a half years before I had a publisher, you know, I funded, you know, the book until I had a publisher and, and that was a lot. So, so it was not easy in any way, but once, once I, I had the right material to show to both the States, it, it really, uh, you know, and I, and I got there. Okay. I mean, even after I got there, okay, it was scary because, you know, they only saw samples. So the whole time until the book was done, I was afraid that they would see the final product and be like, dude, this sucks. We're out. You know, <laughs> like, like, like I just didn't know, you know, like I, I, yeah. and so the big moment for me was when I sent the book, uh, to the Dali estate, and because I knew my the history of it taking months to get a response, I was like, this is going to be the worst two months of my life. Uh, they actually wrote back like a week later and were like, congratulations, we really, we really like this. And uh, uh, same with the, you know, uh, Bill Marks, you know, like I, I, as soon as the cover was done, as soon as like the first 10 pages were drawn, I sent them to him and he wrote back and he said, this is lovely. So, I, you know, I... Uh, yeah, I wonder if we might say a few words about that. I mean, it, the book makes very clear um, you're you're one of many Marx Brothers uh, fans and artists who have uh, experienced firsthand what a beautiful and warm and supportive guy oh, Bill Marx is. Oh my is. gosh! He and he he wrote a beautiful intro yeah. too. the The book has um, it's structured like a movie, and so before the main feature presentation there are three shorts in a newsreel and one of the shorts is a little piece that bill wrote yeah. for you which is quite something it's really special can i i'd like to say something about bill like um i was lucky enough to present in person to him the the the, the artwork for the first time um in 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 rancho mirage and um it was it was so wonderful um, you didn't wear the costume like you did the first time you met him no, no, I didn't. I didn't. But I told him the story. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I remember you. That was, you were weird, man. Like, what were you, nine? You were wearing a trench coat? Come on. No. Uh, but, like, he's a hero to me, you know? I mean, 
like he wasn't actually a I guess a Marx Brothers per se, but as a as a nine year old seeing him in person, that was the closest thing I was ever going to get to meeting a Marx Brothers. And he played the piano, and there was a harp there. So to me, you know, like from from a young age, he was he was a Marx brother to me. And, and, um, he is the, the remaining child of a Marx brother that carries on that spirit in public in some way. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like uh, there's still a couple yeah. of others. Um, but like, you know, they, they, they're, they're not, you know, actively, you know, um, you know, they haven't actively been in public in many years, like greeting fans. And, and he had, done that up until recently and and to me he's so important in that way and and you know as i've been prepping this book tour i've been working to get at least one event in rancho mirage um because you know he uh bill doesn't really travel uh anymore and uh the one way to 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 kind of present with him would be to do it in rancho mirage and um, I've actually been having trouble finding somewhere in Rancho Mirage because uh, there's there's actually uh, I, uh, even though it is in the middle of nowhere, uh, Palm Springs. You know, Palm Springs is kind of a hip place. I would actually think there'd be more more spots, but there's actually not. And I'm I've been really a little bit bummed because like I really want to celebrate Bill. You know, with in this because to me he's he's very important and very special and and I feel like if anyone is a fan of the Marx brothers and a fan of their legacy, I feel like having a moment with Bill is, is, is a gift, you know, is is a special thing. So I'm really trying to pull that off. I'm really trying to create at least one event, um, in, in, uh, in April where, um, you know, anyone that could get to Palm Springs could, could have that, um, you know, but also, I guess, you know, to video it and, and be able to maybe live stream it. I don't know. I, I'm sure that to most people, it's not as big a deal, I, I guess. Like maybe, uh, you know, he's just the son of Harpo. But to me, he's the son of Harpo. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a living to me, link to you know? our brothers. So, yeah. So I can't, I can't express enough how special he is to me and, and how important I think he is to the world and and uh, as well I, I feel like I I, I really want to give um you know Robert Bader a lot of um credit for um for for you know he's done a lot of work with Bill um and uh in in helping with Harpo's legacy and um and he cares so much about Bill and it's been nice to to share that feeling with uh with Robert uh um, and and to see and to see how much uh, to see in person how how devoted he is. I always say um, you're gonna you you create some art and um, it's very possible no one's gonna give a shit. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, like you, I feel like as an artist you always have to prepare yourself for that and just be be prepared. But I really I hope that when people read the book that if if anything that they get out of it, I hope they read the the, the story about Bill. Honestly, you know. Um, because, um, I'd like for people to know how important he is to me and, and to other people. Well, I would certainly second the, uh, the, the instruction to anyone listening to, to go out and get a, get a copy when it comes out in March. Um, it, it is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful work of art in its own right. Um, it's also an, an utterly uh, valid and important contribution to Mark's history. And not only that, but what is Manuela's phone number, by the way? <laughs> 
it's it's in Spanish. Do you do you speak Spanish? <laughs> Damn it! You you want to know it? You want to want to know what's funny is that like you know we wrote this whole book we've never met you know, uh, but she is going to come to the release events in New York City and in London. I'm there. Why don't we uh, as we uh, enter the. Uh... As we attempt to bring this episode in for a landing, Josh, um, uh, this would be a good time for you to tell us a little bit about those events. Mm. Can you plug those? Oh, my events? God. I would love to. I have been working on them. My, my, my publisher, it, like, like, like they're, they're sort of like dizzy, I think, now. And like, they're all like taking. Uh, they obviously. They're, really right, they're all taking like last minute vacations for some reason as I send them all these events that I put together because they're like, you know, it's really hard to get book events. I'm like, OK. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, that's the way. and then and then the next thing you know, I send them 14 events that I've set up, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What 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 kind of help are you going to give me with promotion? Oh, whatever you want to do, you just yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And do well, it. no, they're, they're they're doing their job, you know, with uh, with sure, uh, with sure. the news and all that. But like, I, you know, the artist is the best spokesperson for um for for public stuff. I think you know, because um, I can make a lot of good shit up that I'm going to do and uh, and uh, get to get these venues excited. Um, I think we'll be able to pull some of it off. And I'm expecting your help, Noah, with uh, some of it. Uh, <laughs> I'll be there. Um, I'll, I'll, the New York yeah. event, anyway. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, for for future conversation, I'm actually hoping we could figure out a way to maybe um, have uh, just the the music on the songs that um, that you're going to be singing, and maybe we could figure out a way to actually have you sing them uh, live. I'd love that if that's possible. Yes, there will. Uh, if, if things go as uh, according to plan, there will be uh, s- s- the parts of the book may come to yeah. life at the New York. So event. I'm excited about that. So I've got um, I've got a bunch of Austin, Texas events, obviously, because that's where I live. Um, uh, the Alamo Draft House, which is a really famous movie cinema in Austin around the country is going to be doing. Uh, oh, I remember the Alamo. Draft yeah. House. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I'm bummed. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be doing duck soup and a presentation in DC. I'll be at politics and prose in, uh, new and all this is on the website for the book, uh, horseback salad book.com. Um, that's horseback salad book. That's right. And New York, really cool venue in the East village called caveat New York that Noah will be at. I'm hoping Noah will also join me at the quad uh, where we're going to be showing a movie that same week of uh, March 26th, 27th, 28th. And then I'm going to try and make it to one of those. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, ah, Doylestown great. Bookstore in Pennsylvania, uh, Houston, Texas, Brazos Books and 14 Pews Cinema, uh, Austin Film Society Cinema back in Austin in April. And then um, a couple of dates in Los Angeles. Um in April. Uh, one is at this really cool venue called Dynasty Typewriter, uh, which is going to be uh, really neat. And then uh, again, that same week, I'm hoping for Palm Springs with Bill Marks in April. And uh, then the Egyptian later in April, which is an amazing theater, a famous cinema. And then uh, London uh, at the Barbican, uh, which I'm, is it Barbican or Barbican? Barbican. Barbican. Uh, <laughs> Barbican. I prefer Barbican. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's going to be Barbican and not Barbican. 
And uh, so that's <laughs> I'm, that's supposedly a really amazing and not Barbara Marks. That's supposed to be a really amazing venue. I'm excited about that. And um, so yeah, a lot of really cool stuff. And I hope lots of people come out. And um, you know, it's funny. It's like uh, the book publishers like, well, you know, we don't really you know usually get a lot of book sales or or people coming to these events. And I'm like, yeah, but the people that come are going to be awesome and I want to meet them, you know, <laughs> like, like, I, like, this is like the best opportunity to meet other Marx Brothers fans, you know, so, um, and, and, and celebrate. So to me, this is like, this is about not just celebrating the book's release, but celebrating the Marx Brothers. And I'm, I'm just super excited to be able to do that, just like Noah was able to do with his show. One of the gratifying things about working on any kind of Marx Brothers project or book or, or social group is uh, just how great the other fans are, the people you yeah. connect with on the basis of this shared love of these great artists. Uh, it makes worthwhile all the uh, exhausting and exhaustive efforts that you described that you went through to make the book happen and uh, that we have all gone through to uh, contribute our little verse to the ongoing song of the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Uh, well, Josh, it has been a pleasure talking to you uh, today about this book, just as it's a pleasure to uh, make some small contribution to it while you were working on it. And uh, we thank you for Man, I thank you for, guys uh, so much for uh, having me on and, and for, for um, you know, being so supportive. You know, it's like you guys have been, um, you know, keeping the torch going for a long time, uh, uh, privately and publicly. And this is my this is my coming out party as, as a contributor. And uh, no, I, I really appreciate you guys, um, you know, uh, letting me be a, be a part of it. And, and, and also, I'm proud that I was able to keep up with you guys. I was really like, am I just going to be sitting there quiet the whole time? Because they're going to be like, they're, they're going to know so much. And I'm just going to be like, so Salvador Dali, uh, you know. But yeah, so this is great. It made me feel like I actually can, you know, I can talk shit, you know. Many have tried, my friend. Many have. <laughs> well, what is there left to say? But the Marx Brothers Council podcast was hosted and produced by Matthew Conium, Bob Gassell, and Noah Diamond, and edited by Bob Gassell. Today's guest, Josh Frank. You can find out all about us and our podcast at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. You can find each of us on social media and say whatever you want to us. We can take it. Um, and if you're a Marx Brothers fan, by all means, stop by the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group from whence this podcast sprung and where we have the Internet's greatest ongoing 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week Marx Brothers party. Yes. In the search for... Uh, Music to close with, there was one obvious choice. It simply had to be. A monkey decided that he would make up the funniest song in the world, so the monkey sang. A giraffe once played near a looking glass, and he saw his neck was dirty as he chanced to pass with a dirty neck. He would not be seen, so he ran to get a washcloth for to wash it clean. Laugh, laugh, laugh at the gangland giraffe. He's a funny, funny sight to see. Half, half, half of the neck of one giraffe is just twice as much as it should be. Now he soon found out he couldn't reach the top, so he thought that he would try it with a pail and mop. But he could not get high enough with that So he tried it with a scrub brush on a baseball bat 
But the brush didn't work, and he then began to massage it with a broomstick and a sprinkling can. Now that still was short, so he cried, here goes. And he tried it with a ladder and a fire hose. Then he climbed all night, and he climbed all day. But the top was still so very, very far away that he sighed and cried, I give up, sob he. Cause between my head and body, there's too much of me. Laugh, laugh, laugh at the gangling giraffe. He's a funny, ha, <laughs> ha, sight to see. Half, half, half of the neck of one giraffe is just twice as much as it should be. But a giraffe became very angry. That's not a funny song, he said. Oh, dear, answered the monkey. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, giraffe, but I was only trying to make up the funniest song in the world. In that case, cried the giraffe, make up a song about a bear. So the monkey sang. Shaggy bear, saggy bear, raggy, naggy, baggy bear, hairy bear, berry bear, glary and contrary bear. When you growl, as you howl, you look like a Turkish towel. Grumble the growl, grumble the growl, just like a dainty Turkish towel. But a bear was listening. That song isn't funny, he grumbled. Why not make up a song about a really funny animal? Make up a song about a kangaroo. So the monkey sang. A kangaroo's a funny thing. He hops around like an old bed spring. The color of his skin's too pale. He'd look better with stripes on his tail. A kangaroo has a kangarooish face, on which two eyes look so out of place. He is the silliest creature in the zoo, cause he looks so much like a kangaroo. When the monkey finished singing, the bear laughed, the giraffe laughed, but a kangaroo cried. No kangaroo would laugh at that song. Why not make up a song about a monkey? So the monkey sang. Chatterbox monkey, how much do you know? What makes a monkey chitter-chatter so? Monkey's arms are much too long. It must be that they wear them wrong. Their tails are high, their foreheads low. That's why monkeys chitter-chatter so. Chatterbox monkey, do you know your place? Why does a monkey have a funny face? Monkeys have no sense at all. They look too old to be so small. Between their ears, there's too much space. That's why a monkey has a funny face. Chatterbox monkey, will you tell me please? Why does a monkey like to live in trees? Monkeys eat such silly meals. They stop to pet banana peels. They always sneeze into the breeze. That's why monkeys like to live in trees. There, exclaimed the monkey. Who can say that song isn't funny? I can, replied a voice. And it was another monkey. The second monkey was very wise. Your song won't be funny as long as you make fun of a fellow creature, he said. 
and it's just as bad to make fun of your own kind. So why not make up a song that won't hurt anybody's feelings? Then the face monkey sang. We eat our milk and drink our bread. Giggle, biggle, wiggle, squiggle, mishmash, goo. We wear our socks upon our head. Piggle, piggle, snaggle, sniggle, boo, la, boo. Skeedle, daddle, dee, skeedle, doodle, doo. Skeedle, scoodle, noodle, noodle, mishmash, goo. All cows lay eggs and cats. Wow, wow. We wishy-washy, squishy, squashy, fat, fat, boo. Horses sing and dogs meow. Tishy-tashy, slishy-slashy, choo-choo-choo. Skeedle-daddle-dee, skeedle-doodle-doo. Skeedle-scoodle-noodle-noodle, fat, fat, boo. Oh, snow is hot, the sky is brown. Suchy-moochy-coochy-coochy, rat-rat-tee. And you can't stand while sitting down. Loochy-goochy-hoochy-coochy-alkazee. Oh, eyes can hear and ears can see. Ixy, pixy, hixy, chixy, latch, latch, patch. And I am you and you are me. Trixy, sixy, taxi, tixy, snitch, snitch, snatch. Skeetle, doodle, dee, skeetle, doodle, scratch. Skeetle, scoodle, noodle, noodle, latch, latch, snatch. That song didn't hurt anybody's feelings. And the monkey thought it was the funniest song in the world. But maybe you can make up a funnier one. <laughs> 